You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. It's Heather Hurlbert coming to you from the Political Reform Program at New America. And I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and I write spoiler alerts for The Washington Post. And your first spoiler alert of the day is that neither the Sanders campaign nor the Trump campaign has approached either of us for advice. <laughs> Not that we're hurt or in any way whatsoever or upset or jealous about that. No. Um, but yeah, so I, I wrote today in the post about how uh, Donald Trump since September actually has been pledging to introduce his fantastic, wonderful, world-class foreign policy team uh, he mentioned this in one of the GOP debates. He told Hugh Hewitt he was going to do this. There's been various pledges that he was going to do this going forward. And it's five months later, and there's nothing. Uh, there is not a single, as far as I'm aware, foreign policy advisor who has it's said for the record that he has worked for Trump or she has worked for Trump. Uh, in fact, Trump actually did explicitly mention someone uh, who then, when questioned by Mother Jones, said, I have never talked to Donald Trump. Um, now... The point in making this is not to say, oh, my God, he hasn't talked to Bill Kristol or, you know, Mark Thiessen or others whom I might uh, have strong disagreements with with respect to foreign policy. My point is you have to talk to someone um, that there is no such thing as an omniscient foreign policy person as president um, and that you don't know everything. And Donald Trump has amply demonstrated over the past five months, the oceans of knowledge that he knows nothing about. Um, and presumably he's a good manager. I mean, this is ostensibly what he's, he's running on. And good managers are supposed to know when to delegate and when to get good advice. And from what I've seen, he hasn't gotten any advice whatsoever, good or bad, um, which I find somewhat worrisome. And it would be worth knowing since we're voting on whether or not to give him, you know, all the nuclear codes, what he thinks about various foreign policy issues and who he would trust when it comes to various foreign policy issues. So all I'm saying is in this post is it would be nice to know who actually he's relying on. And more disturbingly, has he decided that he doesn't need to rely on anyone? Well, you point to a really interesting trend, Dan, which is that at the beginning of the primaries um, on the Republican side, you had a huge foreign policy advisor primary, if you will. That you had Jeb Bush going around and trying to lock people up to work only for him. You had some coverage, some media coverage of the John Hay Society, which was and I believe still is advising yeah. a range of, of candidates. And you had you had candidates trumpeting who they were associated with. That was a and good pun. Uh, we're done now. Drop <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go you know, it's it, as the campaign has gone on, um, you have Trump and also Sanders who just, you know, have absolutely shown, I mean, sort of beyond indifference to active hostility to attempts to get them to talk about who are their foreign policy influences, who are their advisors, where do they look. Um, and so you here you have both of these guys who are telling the media that they believe they are going to win the nomination and who yet don't seem to think that, you know, part of the job of presenting yourself as ready to win the nomination is, as you say, at least being able to manage sort of bringing in wisdom on, on national security. And I want to try not to say this out of too much wounded pride, right? As a professional national security person, of course, we think rather than shaking hands of voters in Iowa, they should be boning up on 
you know, points of Shia doctrine. But it says, to me, it says something really interesting about the mindset of the outsider candidate, mm-hmm. that the outsider candidate seems to think it's dangerous to appear ready to actually govern. And that's, you know, even if you are an outsider candidate supporter, which neither I don't think you nor I are, although yeah. you, could, you could surprise me, um, you know, time was when the U.S. had troops overseas and the security situation that many voters perceived as serious, it was seen as important to know what you're talking about. And we have two candidates who clearly don't think it's going to be a disadvantage for them with voters. No, I would, in fact, I would I would reverse it. I think they think it's a legitimate advantage in their campaigns that they're not relying on experts. Um, you know, both of them have basically said in almost the exact same accent that, um, you know, that what they're doing is they're saying, look, what matters in foreign policy is good judgment that uh, and, you know, that that both of them have basically said, look, I've got the right judgment when it comes to foreign policy, um, which, by the way, is not an entirely awful answer. It's just radically incomplete. Um, you know, it is is perfectly fair to say, look, I was right when I opposed the Iraq war in 2003, although I don't think Donald Trump actually did. He's only says he did beginning in the summer of 2004, but Bernie Sanders certainly didn't. You know, that's fair enough. Um, And the question then is, okay, fine, you show good judgment. There's still things you're going to have to delegate, you know, to others. There are still things you obviously don't know. Um, And there are still things where in the fog of of actual real-time policymaking, you're going to have to make 5149 decisions. You need experts for that. But what is interesting about this election cycle is that essentially on both sides, you are seeing a, you know, almost a groundswell of enthusiasm for candidates that reject expertise, period. Not just expertise on foreign policy, but I think it's expertise more generally. Um, and, and here I will say Trump is a little bit different from Sanders on this in that I think Trump has been a little more willing to go in that direction. You know, Bernie Sanders will talk about the obvious effects of climate change, for example, and, and things like that. Um, but that said, they're both doing it particularly on foreign policy. Um, and I'm not sure if there's anything else to say about this, except it's a demonstration of the sort of erosion of trust uh, in authority that's been going on for quite some time, um, which I'm writing about right now. And so I'm getting all depressed about it. Uh, a couple other points that I think are interesting. One is um, Tom Wright had a great piece at Politico yeah. over the weekend um, looking at, you know, making the argument he may not have any advisors, but um, Trump actually does. And, and Tom, I got to say, you know, anybody who went back and, and watched Trump video from the 80s has has a mad amount of respect for me over a weekend has a mad yeah. amount of respect for me. But he says, you know, Trump was a big Japan basher in the 80s. Trump spent $100,000, which was a, a, an enormous, I mean, it's still an enormous amount of money. In 1987, it was a really enormous amount of money. In 1987, right? So seventh year of the Reagan. The Reagan boom. Yeah. Um, to put out, to, to, to buy a full page ad in the New York Times saying that the U.S. government was being too easy on its allies and was being snookered and ripped off by our allies in 1987. Mm-hmm. You know, this piece gave me a whole new image of, um, of Donald Trump sort of standing on the hood of a Japanese car swinging a sledgehammer. No, I mean, the, that, Tom's full disclosure, Tom is, you know, I work, I, I know him really well. And, and um, as a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings, I think he's nominally my boss. So, of course, he wrote a brilliant essay. Um, 
but that said, I, I, I do think after reading Tom's essay, it, it demonstrates the distinction between having a consistent foreign policy worldview, which Trump clearly does have. If nothing else, uh, Tom's piece convinces me of that. And yet, you know, as I wrote in reaction to it, it's amazing the degree to which a real estate guy doesn't recognize when other countries are experiencing a real estate bubble because he did this about Japan right when that bubble was really starting to take off. And he did it with he's been doing it to China just as that bubble also was taking off. Um, and, and he really does have this sort of zero sum theory when it comes to uh, the economy, which is extremely disturbing um, and, and seems somehow to believe that the U.S. can use military power to you know, extract rents or resources from places like Iraq and elsewhere, which is just not feasible in the slightest and, and not going to work. Well, and here I make the shift back to Sanders and something which is also really fascinating, that there is in the academy and among left-wing activists a fairly well-developed critique of liberal internationalism. Um, there are scholars and writers and thinkers that you and I enjoy arguing with. Sometimes mm -hmm. we agree with them. Sometimes we disagree. Sometimes right. you and I don't agree. Oh, we respect them. Right. But, and, and there is, I mean, a really well, and there are, frankly, there's a non-trivial number of retired senior military folks and especially retired intel guys. There's mm -hmm. something about spending your career in intelligence that leads you to this sort of let's pull back and let them all go to hell view yep. of the world, if I may um, disparage it a little bit. And I, you know, I, I respect the, the intellectual chops being, being put into it. And so you ask yourself the question, why is Sanders so allergic to all those people? You know, why does he not want to embrace the sort of either embrace the realist critique that, you know, some of his base has, has, has embraced. And so I, I have, I have two theories about this. I think maybe your general disregard for experts might have to be a third theory. But, you know, my number one theory is that the guy truly doesn't care and truly only wants to focus on the issues he wants to focus on. My, my, but my other theory is that Sanders actually isn't, you know, he, he's not that far out of the Democratic mainstream. Hmm. And he doesn't want to embrace those guys because he doesn't believe what they believe. Um, you know, he's got a very, he's got a fairly vanilla, you know, he's on the liberal end of the party on Israel-Palestine, but not yeah. a crazy left. No, he's not. So if, and so if he were to embrace the sort of the more extreme realist progressive critique, again, that's where his base wants him to be. That's not where he is. And so then he's sort of left in the position of, but he, he can't, he can't embrace liberal internationalism because that's where Hillary is. So he's got to say nothing. Uh, I will put forward another hypothesis, actually. I, I, I think what you're saying, I mean, I, I don't think it's a single, it's not a monocausal story. Um, I think what, what you're suggesting is likely correct. There is a fourth possibility, which is extremely subversive, and it gets to something that Steve Walt a couple of uh, weeks ago was complaining that there were no realists in terms of, you know, why, where are all the realists on the, the op-ed pages of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and so on and so forth. And I wrote a response to that where I, I said, first, I don't think he's coding realists correctly, but that's not the main issue. The main issue is that the primary political people that have embraced realism as we think about it are on the right. Um, and that it might be, uh, you know, with apologies to our host, Bob Wright, who, who is a big fan of progressive realism, 
that sort of realism as a philosophy is more sympathetic to conservative nationalist worldviews uh, than it is liberal ones. And so as a result, there's a genuine contradiction between what Sanders wants to do at home and what realists would necessarily want. Now, I think those things can be ameliorated, but I do think that is possibly one of the, one of the issues, which is it might just be that the realists that would otherwise potentially embrace Sanders look at what he's proposing to do domestically and are horrified by it. And for that matter, Sanders looks at what these guys say about domestic stuff and vice versa. Well, and not just domestic stuff, frankly. One of the real problems of the um, – I mean, one of the blockades to the emergence of a school of liberal realism, I mean, which in some ways I think is where Obama is. Yeah, I would agree. Um, but that you don't – that the, um, the the effort to have a version of the, of the realist project that um, – that sees power in post-national institutions and that sees power in values. And, you know, if you're a progressive, it's yeah. really, it's really hard to sign up to the, well, the hell with the Syrians. Exactly. You know, it's too yeah. bad they can't sort out. I mean, you know, I, I find it really deeply immoral and problematic. Um, but I'm, I'm a liberal internationalist. You're you know, so I'm squishy. Not, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, but, I, but I do, I do think, and where that leaves, where that has left, um, the left or end of the Democratic Party is just deciding not to engage with the issues because it's too hard. And you, you no, that might that might be the case. Although I I tend to agree with you that he just I, I the other answer is is that of the ones you listed is he just doesn't care because you're right. It would be in his interest at a minimum if he believes the sort of liberal internationalist stuff to at least. All he has to do politically is say it at this point to say, I agree with the secretary on most things. I disagree on, you know, being a little more hawkish on Iran. Yeah, it wouldn't be that hard to make that case. Um, but really, you know, when you listen to him talk about it, it's not his heart's not in it. And he doesn't sound like he knows what he's talking about all that much, um, you know. And so, yeah, it is puzzling that he hasn't it, it, it's puzzling that he hasn't boned up more on this. Well, and there's one last kind of sub theory that I would add here, which is, um, you know, Sanders appears to be in this because there's an issue, sort of an overarching critique that he cares about. He's got a bunch of political operatives around him who, you know, see this as an opportunity to pull off one of the great underdog campaigns in, in recent American political history. And frankly, the senior guys, and I use that word advisedly, in that campaign are, you know, straight out of the 90s Democrat pivot away from foreign policy school of campaign training. Ah, so there is a way that the way the Sanders campaign is being run is kind of a throwback to the, I'll call it the pre-Barack Obama era, right? Because what Obama did that was so smart in 2008 was despite being a first-term senator who didn't have a huge amount of international experience, who had a funny name, and who was up against a very well-traveled primary opponent, Obama wasn't at all afraid to talk about international issues and well, use it to his advantage. He took it seriously. I mean, he was, to be fair, on the Senate Foreign Relations yeah. Committee. He hired Samantha Power, you know, as one of his staffers. I mean, you can quibble with, with – you can quibble with whether he's right or not. What you can't quibble is that it was clear that he knew this was an important issue. And in some ways, this goes back to, correct me if I'm wrong, an essay that you wrote all the way back in 2003 about the Democratic's thin bench on national security, which has been fixed to some extent, except none of that bench goes to Sanders, which raises the last question I want to ask you about this issue. 
um, which is one of the things I also sort of said in my piece today, is that foreign policy advisors might be the big, biggest bandwagoners when it comes to campaigns in history, um, which is to say, you know, if you're a Democratic foreign policy advisor, or if you're a Republican foreign policy advisor, usually you don't necessarily care all that much who you're working for individually. You just want to work for the winner because presumably for most of these people, what they want to do is then get a position in government, get some influence, actually make a difference, you know, what have you. Um what is interesting to me is that despite Trump's, you know, despite the slow recognition now that Trump might actually be the front runner, although just to be clear, I'm still in the denial phase on that one. Um, but assuming, you know, that all the, the, the data suggests that he still is the front runner, you haven't seen that much of it. You know, I haven't heard of anyone desperately trying to get his attention and he clearly hasn't, you know, reciprocated. And apparently the same is, the, is true for Sanders, which raises an ethical question that I'm curious about for you. If either Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders called you at this point and said, you know, it's occurred to me that I don't have that much foreign policy gravitas and you, dear madam, have foreign policy gravitas, would you advise me? My question is, would you? Well, I am a Hillary supporter. So, okay. no, I wouldn't work for Sanders in the primary. Now, if Sanders won the primary, I would have no trouble working for him. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Democratic Party person. Um, and as I said earlier, I think that Sanders is not as different from Hillary as his supporters would like to think that he is, except when it comes to experience and interest in these issues. But no, I mean, I would have and we're in a fortunate situation as Democrats that um, however strongly we may prefer one nominee over the other, um, we're you know, really people shouldn't have any trouble working for either one. Now, Trump is an interesting, I mean, me as like having just said everything I just said, if Trump <laughs> calls me, I'm going to say, heck yeah, I'm happy to come in and talk to you, you know, in, in hopes that anything sort of slides into his head and stays there. And also because it'll be a great story afterwards. Um, my prediction, if Trump is the nominee, is that you'll see, you'll see cleavages um, and you'll see some parts of the Republican foreign policy establishment sort of sit it out. And you'll see some parts go with him. And that's, I mean, I use this sort of image of, of rocks because the cleavages kind of group by group and person by person are going to be really interesting and, and painful. I I tend to agree with that. Um, but uh, it, it'll be, I mean, let me put it this way. I do think my hunch is more advisors will wind up finding a way to talk to Trump in some ways for the same reason you say in terms of talking to Sanders, even though you're a Clinton person, which is, and also, this might sound corny, but to some extent, if someone becomes a major party nominee and they call you up, you kind of almost have an ethical duty to talk to them in the sense of, you know, is it going to be worse if you – it'll be worse if you don't talk to them. Um, I you know. guarantee you, I guarantee you that there are at least 200 of our Republican friends and colleagues having that conversation with themselves. Yeah. Um, so now let me ask the question back to you. What would you do? I mean, I am literally a rhino at this point. I'm a Republican in name only. You know, uh, I haven't voted Republican for the Dem for the for the presidential for the presidency since 2000. Um, if Trump called me, yeah, probably because of that reason, I would meet with him. Um, although, I can't guarantee that I wouldn't let loose a string of ex you know expletives at some point. Um, just because of sheer anger at what he's done to the party. But 
Yeah, I would probably go again, partially also for the story, um, just to find out, you know, get a sense of, of, of what he's like. And because if he was the major, if he was the actual nominee, you know, oh God, I just need some alcohol right now. <laughs> I, so, I guess the answer is yes for the ethical reason, but I wouldn't be happy about it. Let's I really wouldn't. Let's call out two additional things here that we can yeah. see in ourselves and thus, you know, because we call them out in ourselves, we can say them about our, our, our fellows. And that is number one. And, and these are going to seem somewhat contradictory, but these people are charismatic. Yeah. And, you know, you no, know, you're actually not going to go in a room and curse out Donald Trump. And yeah, I know. And I'm not going to go in and tell him he's a misogynist pig and I'm like secretly menstruating right now. You know, I, I'm not going to do <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm good. Um, I'm not going to do, I mean, I just, yes, I just did that on video for an audience, but I'm not actually going to do it in front of Trump and you're not going to call him out either. Now, yeah. and that is true of almost everybody we know. Um, the, other, the other sort of contradictory point is that we, we secretly think that we're smarter than all these people. We yeah. the foreign policy establishment, and that's why we think, oh, it doesn't matter which one of them it is because we'll be, we think we're smarter than all of them. No, I totally think it matters which one of them it is, but that's a separate, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. But um, I do think that part of the reason that people, a lot of people will find it, you know, fairly bearable to go to the nominee is that there is... There is in our community, like in most expert communities, and this gets back to your original point about the public distrust of experts is, you know, we're really invested in the idea that our expertise gives us, you know, something special compared to the rest of everybody. That's true. Although I, I would make one qualification. There's a difference between talking to one of these people and then actually being like one of their boosters, you know, in public or saying, yes, I think this is, is someone who would make a good president. I think I would be happy to talk to Trump. Um, but unless he has like Kilgrave like powers, I don't think I would see myself, uh, you know, then going on television or writing, you know what? I was wrong. I think it'll actually make a good president. Um, but you might be right. I mean, unfortunately you, you, you called out the, the weakness in all of us, which is it's very tough for us to speak truth to power. Uh, and we do think we're smarter than everyone else. And there are ways in which I'm beginning to doubt both of the, or at least the, the latter, uh, the latter assertion, certainly. Yeah, forgive me if I've said this before, but I was very struck working in, in Central Europe in the, in the early 90s, how much every Westerner you talked to was confident that they would have been a dissident? You yeah. Know? No, that's a Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, so that... You know, we, we discussed whether we were going to talk about Davos on this, this podcast, and you confessed that you weren't really following it, and I confess that I'm not really following it either. So this, this raises a question to me. Does, does Davos matter? Uh, that is a, uh, an interesting question. Um, I would answer less than it used to, and it still matters, but not in the way that we think. Um, so less than, than it used to, mostly because, you know, it doesn't quite have, I think, the cachet that it used to um, in terms of like, oh, my God, look at all these, you know, experts and, and high profile people, you know, in the same room. Isn't that fabulous? Um, I, I think since, you know, post 2008, there's been something of a, a, uh, a cultural turn against that kind of confab. 
Um, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't think I don't think it, get, it gets quite the positive coverage that it used to um, on on that front. And indeed, I think it was the BBC that that uh, published this list of like the statements that like all of these people were saying on, you know, like the sort of tweetable things that all these people at Davos were saying, you know, and they have things like what we need is someone who has, a, you know, creates a minute all countries need a ministry of the future which is just one of those sentences that you want to punch your computer when you read because it's so freaking stupid um so i don't think uh I, I don't think um that's the case now that said let's also point out the caveat have you ever been to davos yes i have not so you know this might be resentment on my part uh, perfectly willing to acknowledge that possibility although my understanding from people who have gone is that even if you do go unless you're literally like one of the top people, it winds up being an extremely uh, unsatisfying experience because you're basically sort of treated as a um, uh, a lackey. Um, that said, the other the way in which I do think it matters isn't so much the stuff we read about. It's the fact that it's a focal point. Um, it's a way in which you get all of these sort of various movers and shakers into a room um, or multiple rooms, in which case, like a G20 summit or like you know a, a variety of other things, um, it allows people who otherwise wouldn't be able to talk to each other or the transaction cost for talking, you know, to a lot of people in the same room is tricky. Suddenly that becomes easier. So my hunch is it does still matter also in, the, in that it, it creates this and reinforces this worldview of people who attend it. Um, because and you know this and this is this is one of the classic cognitive biases that people have. They tend to put much more stock in information from. Uh, personal interactions with people than things they read about. Um, you know, and we were talking about this just before. Like, I, both of us would want to meet Donald Trump just to get our own sense of Donald Trump because we think that would actually be more valid than, let's say, if we read a newspaper account of it. Um, I do think what winds up happening at these things is, you know, you get this temporary, you know, or actually sustaining worldview from from seeing all these people. Um, that isn't always right. I mean, I remember two years ago after Davos, everyone was predicting it was going to be World War Three. Um, because of uh, China and Japan, because there were a couple of incidences at Davos where everyone was saying it could be World War III. It could be World War III any moment now, and it was 2014, so the 100-year anniversary seemed appropriate, and that actually didn't happen. Um, so I guess that's my take. What about you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm struck as you as you say that in a, a certain way that this is the height of Davos mania, right, which was maybe, I don't know, 05 to 07, mm-hmm. that both the, the notion that this thing was happening and that it was truly global and that in some ways, you know, what were the sort of the shrinking of Davos is in, or the shrinking of the global footprint of, no, no, I'm not putting that right. My sense is Davos has spawned more and more little sub Davoses and working groups and yes. so on and so forth. So that even as sort of the actual footprint of Davos has grown, the, the perception footprint of it has shrunk. It's gotten to be a more crowded marketplace. Yeah. There's the Bow Forum now. There's the Brussels Forum. There's a whole bunch of different, you know, there's the, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are others. There's Ted, you know, there are others that I'm missing. Go ahead. Well, I was working up to some kind of grand Friedman-esque cliche about um, the world having, having not flattened out quite as flat as it was before the Great Recession. Um, that there's a little bit less of a sense that sort of the world is run seamlessly and fully globally from Davos. Right. I think the other thing is, is that, you know, again, it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is confidence in elites. 
um, which, by the way, is not, you know, the erosion of, of trust in, in experts and elites and what have you is not a U.S.-only phenomenon. It's global. Um, and so as a result, I think, as you know, Davos is one of the, the things that takes a hit as a result of all. Well, I actually wanted to pivot from a meeting that is happening in Switzerland to a meeting that's not yet happening in Switzerland, mm-hmm. which is efforts to assemble um, another round of, of Syrian peace talks or Syrian talks that aren't peace talks. And just to, to sort of ask a question about negotiating theory, which is that you you have right now this very interesting debate over who's going to show up representing Syrians, what Syrians are there. There are Russian Syrians and Saudi Syrians and um, and listening to the opposition groups um, try to squeeze more in terms of ceasefire promises around ceasefire and promises of aid before they agree to show up. So, you know, are we are we witnessing a totally hopeless farce, which is how it's tending to get treated in a certain amount of the media, or are we actually witnessing? the the start or the middle of a god awful grinding process of the sides getting used to talking to each other and getting used to who they talk to about talking to each other and building alliances and building structures that someday in one or two or three or five years result when there's greater exhaustion builds up to being you know is this phase inevitable and unavoidable in the ending of of civil conflicts I guess is what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I'm going to vote for farce. Um, I mean, and I could be wrong, as I said, but part of this is because, you know, you ask about negotiating theory, but the sort of unspoken aspect of this, and you know, is that the Assad government appears to be finally making measurable gains on the battlefield um, with the assistance of Russian air cover. Um, you know, for months, you know, for, for, we're on month four of this, I think. And for the first couple of months, there was an attempted offensive that didn't seem to work terribly well. Um, but I think as the Washington Post and others have have reported, uh, it seems to be working better now. Um, that I believe a key transit hub for the moderate rebels was just taken, um, by the, by Syrian forces. And so as a result, weirdly, I think what you might be seeing now is, a replay, a bizarro replay of what happened in Bosnia um, in 1995 when finally under the aegis of U.S. air cover, uh, the Croatians and Bosnians were able to take significant amounts of territory to the point where it finally forced the Serbs to realize they had to go to the negotiating table. Um, I don't know if that moment has happened yet here for two reasons. The first is this is all relatively new. Um so it's possible that, you know, people have to go through the five stages of recognition for that to happen. The second is I don't know if this is going to stay as it is. It's, it partially depends on how the U.S., Turkey, and Saudi respond to this sort of recent reverses. I've read reports, and maybe you can confirm – I'm sure you've paid more attention to this than I have. I've read reports that said Kerry threatened to withhold aid for some of these rebels unless they agreed to go to the negotiating talks, which, if true uh, – you know, does suggest that what that what the Obama administration wants is just to end this um, in as as quick a way as possible. You know, perhaps for humanitarian reasons, um, and you know, uh, also because they just want to end it, which you know is is understandable. But that said, my hunch is, is that in that instance, the rebels are going to turn to Saudi and Turkish and other benefactors uh, because 
you know, correct me if I'm wrong, they've been resistant to the whole idea of, of these kinds of negotiations in the first place. And I think they're first going to want to see if they can change the, the facts on the ground before they actually engage in substantive negotiations. So maybe the one way in which this wouldn't be a farce, and there's 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 IR theory that talks about this, is how you create structures that everyone recognizes as being sham at the outset, but eventually over time they actually acquire meaning just because you keep doing them and keep doing them. And that's, I guess, suppose one possibility, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I do think that describes Kerry's theory. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that describes Kerry's theory of, of Israeli-Palestinian negotiations too, um, which, you know, in that case, it wasn't a theory shared by the other actors. Right. But um, in this case, I do think it's what Kerry's trying to do. I also think from the administration's point of view, the reason you want to try to wind this up is to be able to put more, more pressure on ISIS. Um, and that's, and if you don't think, um, if you mm -hmm. don't think yeah. that there is a scenario under which the quote unquote moderate opposition can win, then what you want to do is stop the killing and stop ISIS's ability to, to keep using Syria, Syrian territory. If that's the case, though, then you have to give credit, unfortunately, as much as it pains me to admit this to Vladimir Putin, because then his strategy worked brilliantly, which was his strategy from the get go was to go in. Um, he did not want to see Assad fall, and Assad looked, you know, in a precarious situation over the summer and the early fall. And then the clear aspect of their strategy was not to actually fight ISIS, but to defeat the moderate Syrian rebels that were backed by the U.S. and the Sunni Arabs, because that would leave the U.S. with no choice but to choose between Assad or ISIS. And as you say, that would mean that the U.S. would have chosen Assad. I mean, again, the, the administration would say that you know, this isn't the same as choosing Assad. I'm going to let them make that case for themselves. I feel on much more comfortable ground saying that Putin's strategy appears to be working well now. I don't see how it can do anything but fail in really painful ways for Russia in the long term. Why do you uh, say that? That I'm curious about. Um, because Assad will eventually fall or die. There will eventually be a different government. And um, what... You know, you will have succeeded in uniting Syrians in remembering the amount of pain inflicted on them. So you think this? Is, so you think this is like the U.S. the, the U.S. sponsorship of the 1953 coup in Iran, for example? Yeah. So that even if this buys uh, Russia influence in Syria for potentially quite some time, eventually it will lead to the exact opposite. Yeah. Okay. And that, the other thing that it's likely to do is speed up rather than slow down the flow of Russian citizen fighters to, to ISIS, which mm. is a significant, significant issue already. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, th there's uh, one other dy dynamic in, in all this that I, I don't want to end without, without mentioning, which is the, um, the sort of complete coming apart of the truce between Turks and Kurds in Turkey the sort of massive uptick in, in violence in mm -hmm. Eastern Turkey, in state-sponsored violence and also fighting, um, which is now, I mean, number one, a tragedy for Turkey. Number two, leading the Turkish government to have very strong opinions about what Kurdish groups should and shouldn't be allowed to be at the peace table for Syria, which, you know, the, the, Kurdish groups, as we know, have very strong footholds in their parts of Syria. And so if we're in a situation where Turkey is not willing to play or is actively going after the, that part of the opposition, I mean, I think that 
helps the Russians, it helps Assad, and frustratingly, it probably helps the extremist groups. Um, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, and it sure looks like that's where we're going. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure. Well, no, before we close, we, we also have to mention one other thing which we were going to talk about last week when we were going to do this, which is something that I don't think has gotten much press in the United States, intriguingly enough, but it was a problem that both you and I experienced on the same day, which is there was a series of apparently robocalls to high schools and, and, and school systems um, in Massachusetts, I think New Jersey, and I assume Maryland? Delaware, Maryland. I believe there were some in Virginia, too. Right. But the important thing is, is that you had kids and I had kids in schools that were, um, in, at least in, in, in my case, put under lockdown because there was a robocall saying there was a bomb in the school or what have you. Yep. And um, in our case, I think after about an hour or so, the, the kids were put shelter in place um, and then they went about their day. I don't, how did things play out uh, where you were? Well, we were, I mean, in a way fortunate because the, there were these started on a Monday, but the one didn't happen at our school until Tuesday. So they were quickly able to determine that there were a lot of these and that it was highly likely to be um, to be a, a hoax. And so. A hoax, yeah. Um, my kid came home just thinking there had been a drill. Other kids seem to have understood that there was more than a drill going on. But, um, you know, and it, it, what was interesting to me as a practitioner was both, you know, sort of this does, it's, it, it's not good for this to happen, but it is good for those of us who say, oh, people shouldn't give in to fear, to be reminded what fear is like when it's your own kid. And second, to watch the parents on the parent listserv immediately move into critiquing the district's policy and response. Oh, yeah. did that happen down there? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I won't lie here. I do not get on parent boards because I'm just scared of them. Um, you know, there's a strict division of labor in my family on this, on this issue. Um, I mean, my... I guess my thought is my thoughts on this are twofold. The first is I'm oddly cheered by the fact that this wasn't a bigger news story because in this world where, you know, after Paris and after San Bernardino, you know, and, and, you know, you could have hype, you could have seen threats hype like this a lot more. It is actually refreshing that oddly this was not hyped all that much. I'm a little surprised, frankly, because in some ways this could have been something that, that people could have played up. Although admittedly the threat clearly turned out to be a hoax. Um, and the second thing is that in some ways what this does is take me back to, I don't know if you had to, to, I'm older than you, I suspect, or I, you know, I, I remember vaguely in like first or second grade having to do drills where you got under your desk, um, because of something bad. Now I, I can't remember, I think in some cases it was explicitly a nuclear, attack but in other cases i was living at one point in ohio it was definitely a tornado thing but that said there are various safety drills and so forth that i remember as a kid having to do that kind of vaguely troubled me in terms of you know what it was about and i think unfortunately you know the new shelter in place is the shelter in place is the new cold war drill um when it comes to this stuff for our schools which is you know either a combination of terrorism or lone gunmen or what have you and that's the world we're living in now and i'm, I'm not sure <laughs> Weirdly, I don't know how I feel about the fact that this turned out to be not that big of a deal, except on parent boards. Yeah. 
Well, I went to kindergarten and first grade in New York State, where we did still do nuclear drills, where you went out into the hall and put your head against the cinder block and put your hands over the back of your neck yep. to protect the back of your neck from yep. stuff falling down on you after the nuclear bomb went off. Yeah. Yep. Um, the thing that struck me about this is what a weird short period of history it was and how ridiculously privileged we were as children and then as, as parents that your kid walks out the door every day and you have a really, really excellent expectation of your kid walking back in the door. You know, my, my mother was reminding me, you know, she had friends who got polio as children. Huh. Um, you know, just all the things that we, I mean, and I, and yeah, parenthood is awful and terrifying and, and you and I both have pre-adolescence or early adolescence, but we won't, we won't bore the viewers with our, with our white knuckle fears on all of that. But just the, the pure, like, you know, your kid's not going to get gored milking the cows. Your kid's not going to get cowpox and die. Your kid's not going to go to the city and disappear and never be heard from again. Um, you know, your kid's not going to be conscripted by the czar for 20 years. Um, but but the, 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 ang the level of anxiety that, you know, that my kid's school has signs hanging in it, reminding you what to do for a shelter-in-place drill. And I hate that. Yeah. But it's a, that's a much more natural state of human affairs than yes. what, what we enjoyed. And it is worth remembering, again, this is the distinction between the psychology of catastrophic events and our actual reality. We are actually still safer um, than, than when you or I were kids, for that matter. Yep. You know, our kids are actually much safer. Rare, you know, it, as common as these sort of mass shootings are, actual levels of viol, you know, homicide are down, and, and all of these sorts of, of all the sort of broad statistical measures um, show it's actually safer now than it used to be. Um, it's just the the problem is is that psychologically, no one feels like that. Right. Um, it's a wonderful time to be a parent in America. Now, where's my drink? <laughs> <sighs> God. All right, dear viewers, the next time we see you, it will be after Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, perhaps we will both be working for Donald Trump by then. <laughs> if we do, you know what? If 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 both, I say we do this. If both Trump and Sanders win Iowa and New Hampshire, the next one we do is got to have alcohol in it. All right. Okay. All right. That is that is a promise to you and to our loyal viewers. And we'll we'll let the viewers know in advance so they can drink along. There we go. Yes. All right. Bye bye. Right. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.